that you'd like to read along, please feel free to use one of the pew Bibles in the seat back in front of you. Uh, if you use one of those Bibles, you can find our text this morning on page 889. God makes us uncomfortable sometimes. There are parts of the inspired word of God that make us squirm. We find ourselves wishing the writers wouldn't have included these passages because it would be much easier for us to not have to reconcile what we're reading with our concept of God. When God, for instance, commands the Israelites to kill men in the conquest of the promised land, we can kind of understand that. But when he commands the slaughter of women and children, we cringe. We wonder how we can possibly be reading that passage correctly. Maybe the writer made a mistake and that never happened at all. But if that's the case, then how can scripture be breathed out by God if it has such an error in it? We exhaust the options for explaining away the text, and then we're forced to either bury our heads in the sand and pretend we never read that, or else um, adjust the, the understanding of who God is that we hold. Coming across a passage like this in the course of our daily devotions can be extremely jarring, and it may even lead us to a crisis of faith. And it's not just the Bible that can make us struggle with our view of God. Events happen in our lives or the lives of others that confound us as well. We think, how could this thing happen if God is truly in control? We think, how can God truly be good and allow such a thing? A godly mother of young children is killed by a drunk driver who walks away from the crash unscathed. Or a natural disaster strikes and leaves innocent people homeless. Or a toddler is diagnosed with a terminal illness. We struggle to reconcile these events with the Bible's description of a loving God. In our text this morning, Paul faces the stark reality that the Israelites, God's chosen people, have rejected the promised Messiah, despite their prominent place in salvation history. The Israelites had been longing and waiting for the Messiah to appear for centuries, and now that he has, they've put him to death and refused to believe in him. And this leads Paul to explore the question of whether God's word has failed. Let's read together Romans 9, 1 through 13. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, 
not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The first thing we see in our text this morning is Paul's sorrow because Israel has not believed. Paul's sorrow, Israel has not believed. Paul has just spent eight chapters of his letter to the church at Rome explaining that the Jews and the Gentiles were in the same boat as far as their need of salvation and the means of obtaining that salvation. He has asserted in no uncertain terms that the law cannot save despite its central place in the lives and the thinking of the Jews. Beyond that, passages like Galatians 2 make it clear that Paul was understood, both by himself and by others, to be the apostle to the Gentiles. The second half of the book of Acts is all about Paul bringing the gospel to the Gentiles across the Roman Empire. In light of all this, it would be easy for a Jew to see Paul as a traitor to his own people. Paul was, after all, a Jew himself, and had at one time been a Pharisee, zealous for the law to the point of persecuting Christians. But he had spontaneously converted to Christianity following his encounter with Christ on the Damascus Road, and he had toiled to bring the hated Gentiles into the kingdom of God through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A guy could be excused for looking at all the evidence and concluding that Paul just no longer cared about the Jews at all. That's almost certainly how any given Jew of Paul's day would have seen him. So Paul begins Romans 9 by asserting his concern for his people. And to make sure that no one thought he was just blowing smoke or making empty claims, he tells his readers not just that he is speaking the truth, but that he is speaking the truth in Christ. And he invokes the Holy Spirit to bear witness with his own conscience to the truthfulness of his claims. And what is his claim? Not just that he's bummed out about the Jews, but that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. He doesn't just get sad or wistful sometimes when he spends too much time thinking about his unbelieving Jewish friends or family members. Rather, his sorrow and his anguish are unceasing, not just for his Jewish acquaintances, but for the entire nation of Israel. Despite his life's work of evangelizing the Gentiles, he still has a strong sense of kinship with the Jews, his kinsmen according to the flesh. His heart breaks for them to such a degree that he says, if it were possible, he'd give up his own salvation and be damned to hell if it would ensure that the Jews would embrace Jesus. Because that's what this word accursed means when Paul uses it here. It's the word anathema. And Paul also used it in Galatians 1, 8 and 9, when he said, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. He's saying, let whoever is preaching a false gospel be damned to hell. And that's what he could wish for himself in Romans 9, if it would only ensure Israel's salvation. Again, Paul has invoked the name of Christ and the Holy Spirit to testify to his truthfulness in making this claim. He legitimately would trade spiritual places with the unbelieving nation of Israel if that were possible. 
Have you guys ever loved anyone that deeply? Many of you know that I was raised devoutly Catholic. I came from a Catholic family. I attended a Catholic school, kindergarten through eighth grade. I was an altar boy. I received all the sacraments available to me at the proper times. I even seriously considered the priesthood for a time. But God called me to place my faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins when I was 17. My parents were initially insistent that I continue attending Mass, and I obediently did that for several weeks until God worked things out so that I was able to start going to a Baptist church instead. All that to say this, since my own conversion, I've had a desire to see Catholics come to a true saving faith in Jesus Christ. But it hasn't been due to sorrow and unceasing anguish. Either for my former spiritual kinsmen or for my biological kinsmen, most of whom are still Catholic to this day. Rather, I confess it's had more to do with pride. God has convicted me of this heart attitude that made me look like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable in Luke 18. Rather than casting down my eyes and beating my breast and asking God for mercy because I'm a sinner like the tax collector did, I've puffed myself up like the Pharisee and I've thanked God that I'm no longer like the Catholics I went to grade school with or mass with. Ironically, I thought I was better than them because I had come to a true understanding of the gospel, as though that had anything at all to do with me. Even now, though, having repented of my sinful pride, I still can't honestly say, along with Paul, that if it were possible, I'd go to hell if it meant salvation for all the Catholics. Please understand, this is, at best, a loose analogy, and I'm not implying that it's impossible for a Catholic to have a saving faith in Christ. There are lots of very strong opinions about the spiritual state of Catholics, and that's much too large a topic for this morning. I only wanted to give an illustration from my own life that seemed fitting here. Paul, though, out of the depth of his sorrow for his kinsmen, according to the flesh, would have traded his own salvation for theirs. And it's not just because he was Jewish himself. Rather, he points out the unique status of Israel as God's chosen people in verses 4 and 5. He says first that they are Israelites. Jew was the term given to the Hebrew people after the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed and the southern kingdom of Judah returned from exile. They were the people of Judah, so they were Jews. But the title of Israelite was full of meaning for the Hebrews. It was the name of the race whom God had entered into covenant with. And it spoke of their unique status as God's chosen people, and it was Israel who received all the blessings and privileges that follow in Paul's list here in Romans 9. Paul mentions the Israelites' adoption by God. We have to be careful here. This is not the same adoption by which followers of Jesus are adopted into God's, fam uh, God's family. In Ephesians 1.5, Paul says, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And if you'll recall, he even says back in Romans 8.15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The believer's adoption as sons and daughters makes us co-heirs with Christ of the kingdom of God. 
we receive all the rights and blessings of the new covenant. This is not the adoption Paul is referring to here in Romans 9. Rather, Israel was adopted in a national sense to receive all the rights and blessings of the old covenant. We see this, for instance, in Exodus 4, as Moses is setting out to return to Egypt and to be used by God to free his people from slavery there. In verses 21 through 23 of Exodus 4, we read, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God had chosen Israel as his own son, as a holy nation. Theirs was the adoption. Now there's a school of thought that says Israel's adoption, while different than the adoption of Christians, is equally effective in saving them. Christians are saved by faith in Jesus, and Israel is saved by their belonging to God's adopted nation. But this would fly in the face of what Paul has already said in Romans 2 and 3, so it cannot be the case. Next, in his list of Israel's blessings, Paul mentions the glory. He's most likely referring to God's presence among the Israelites, visibly manifested by the pillar of cloud and fire that led the Israelites during their exodus from Egypt. It's sometimes called the Shekinah glory. By day it was a pillar of cloud, and by night it was a pillar of fire, so they could see as it led them in their journey. And then after the tabernacle was built, we read in Exodus 40, 34 through 38, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This pillar, this cloud, conveyed the presence of God himself leading the Israelites in the, in the desert. And after Israel had settled in the promised land and Solomon had built a permanent temple for the Lord, God's glory settled in that temple. This is most likely what Paul means when he says the glory belonged to Israel. From glory, Paul moves on to the covenants. In the Old Testament, God made covenants with Noah and with Abraham and with the Israelites at Mount Sinai and with David. And it's likely that Paul is referring to all of those here. A huge part of Israel's national identity was tied to those covenants, especially the Mosaic Covenant. In fact, the next item on Paul's list is the giving of the law, which was given to Israel by God through Moses. I've already mentioned that the possession of the law was the backbone of what it meant to be an Israelite. And included in the law was the next item on Paul's list here in Romans 9. The worship refers to the the proper sacrifices and rituals and festivals laid down for the Israelites in the law. They knew the type of worship that was pleasing to God because God had instructed them alone out of all the nations and peoples on the earth. Next, Paul mentions the promises. 
and this likely refers to the promises made to Abraham and to the other patriarchs. That's certainly how Paul uses the term later on in Romans 15.8. God promised Abraham, for instance, that through Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The patriarchs themselves, Paul mentions in his list of Israel's blessings. Israel had the promises because they had the patriarchs to whom the promises were made. They could trace their ancestry back to Abraham and rest secure that any promises of blessing made to Abraham or to Isaac or to Jacob were for them as well. And finally, Paul mentions the Christ as the final and greatest blessing of Israel. The promises made to the patriarchs were ultimately messianic promises. And accordingly, the Messiah, or Christ, had been born a Jew from the kingly line of blood, uh, bloodline of David. It was this Messiah whose rejection by Israel was causing such anguish and sorrow for Paul. It makes sense to think that all these blessings and all the promises and this privileged status as God's chosen covenant people should have resulted in the Israelites embracing their longed-for Messiah as the fulfillment of all these promises that God had made. But the Jews had roundly rejected Jesus. The Christ had finally come, fulfilling all that the prophets had written about him. But he had failed to meet the expectations that Israel had built up for him. So they crucified him. Why hadn't God's people believed in God's Messiah? What on earth had gone wrong here? Had God's plan of salvation gone off the rails? And if so, can God still be trusted? Paul anticipates these questions and he answers decisively in verse 6. So the second thing we see this morning is God's faithfulness. His word hasn't failed. God's faithfulness. His word hasn't failed. And why hasn't it failed? Why can the nation of Israel reject their Savior and Paul still tell us God's word hasn't failed? Because of the remainder of verse 6 through verse 9. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Paul tells us there is the physical nation of Israel, and then within that physical Israel there is a spiritual Israel. And it is the spiritual Israel, not the physical, that is the recipient of the promises. So God's word regarding Israel's salvation has not failed because it was always about the believing remnant, the spiritual Israel. Israel as a nation may have rejected the Christ, but there were individual Jews who had believed. Paul himself, for instance. And with the exception of Luke and Acts, every book of the New Testament was written by a believing Jew. To illustrate what Paul is talking about, he uses the example of Isaac. God's initial call of Abraham, then known as Abram, is recorded in the first three verses of Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, 
and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abram was 75 years old at the time. He and his wife Sarai had no children, and that didn't look like it was going to change. So how was God going to make him a great nation? Despite that, Paul, or, I'm sorry, Abram stepped out in obedience, and he and Sarai left the land of Ur. In Genesis 15, 1-6, we're told, The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. It seemed like Abram was going to wait for God to work. He believed the Lord. One chapter later, though, Sarai decides whether through shame at her barrenness or a desire to help God's plan along, to give her servant Hagar to Abram to be his wife and to bear the son that Abram had been promised. And Hagar gives birth to Ishmael when Abram is 86 years old. In the next chapter, in Genesis 17, God formally makes his covenant with Abram and changes Abram's name to Abraham. He also changes Sarai's name to Sarah, and he promises to give Abraham a son by her. In verses 18 through 21 of Genesis 17, we read, Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And then in Genesis 18.10, the Lord uh, makes the promise that Paul is referring to in Romans 9. I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And of course, Sarah does indeed bear Abraham a son when Abraham is 100 years old, and they name him Isaac. Now, what Paul is driving at here in Romans 9 is that being children of Abraham isn't what matters in terms of God's plan of redemption. Ishmael was just as much a son of Abraham as Isaac, but Ishmael wasn't the child of the promise, so it didn't really matter who his father was. In fact, Genesis 25 tells us Abraham remarried after Sarah died, and he had six more sons with his new wife. That means that purely in terms of heredity, there were seven other sons who all had an equal claim to be the inheritor of the promise that God had made to Abraham to bless the nations through his offspring. But it was to the child of the promise, not merely the children of the flesh, who were to continue on the family line and have the place in God's plan of redemption. The Pharisees of Jesus' day didn't get this. 
They thought that by claiming Abraham for their father, they were assured a place in heaven. John the Baptist had a run-in with the Pharisees where this very matter came up. Matthew 3, 7 through 10 tells us, But when he, that's John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What's John say here? Who cares about your family tree? Repent. Jesus in John 8 also downplays the Jews' Abrahamic ancestry. Jesus is in the middle of a, a teaching session and things start to get a little heated. In John 8, 37 and 38, Jesus says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Then in verses 39 through 41, we read, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And Jesus goes on to tell them that their father is actually the devil and not Abraham. And things naturally escalate from there. But the point is made. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And so God is wholly trustworthy and his faithfulness is beyond question. His word hasn't failed. Finally, in our text this morning, we see God's sovereignty. Salvation is by election. God's sovereignty. Salvation is by election. It would be easy to read what Paul has just written about Abraham and Isaac and think it was just a one-off. God had made a promise and God had fulfilled that promise by providing Abraham and Sarah with a son. Obviously, Ishmael and the others weren't the promised son because the promise had been made specifically to Abraham and to Sarah. Case closed. It should have no bearing on the discussion of a spiritual versus a physical Israel just to ensure that his readers don't get the opportunity to draw that conclusion, though, Paul immediately provides another example, that of Jacob and Esau. In verse 10, Paul establishes that, unlike Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau both had the same father and the same mother. He said Rebekah had conceived children by one man. That by one man there can also be understood as by one single act of conception. Not only did Jacob and Esau have the same parents, but they were conceived at the same time. And Paul continues to level the playing field, as it were, between the two brothers by stating plainly that before the twins were born or had done anything, either good or bad, Jacob was chosen. Why? It certainly wasn't because God had looked down the corridor of time and, and seen that Jacob would be the more virtuous brother. 
or that Esau would commit some heinous sin that would disqualify him from having a place in God's plan of redemption. Frankly, Jacob ended up being a pretty shady guy. He took advantage of Esau to get his birthright. He tricked Isaac into giving him Esau's blessing. He outfoxed Laban to take possession of Laban's flocks. And we really don't have any record of Esau doing anything outrageously sinful aside from wanting to murder Jacob in retaliation for Jacob stealing his blessing. But honestly, his anger was pretty justified there. So why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? Especially considering that Esau was the elder of two brothers, albeit only by a little bit. Verse 11 tells us the reason. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. God could have chosen Esau. The patriarchs could have been Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. But that's the choice we would have expected, again, because Esau was the elder brother, barely. And the elder brother, the eldest brother, was the heir in Bible times. The expected choice doesn't tell us about God's sovereignty, though, like the election of the younger brother does. I want to throw in a bit of an aside here and address verse 13. Did God seriously hate Esau? Can a loving God hate anyone? It depends on your definition of the word hate. Jesus also used the word hate in Luke 14, 26, when he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This is one of those passages that can make us uncomfortable. Does Jesus really want us to hate our loved ones as a condition for being his disciples? We typically define the word hate as a sort of malicious loathing of a person or a thing. If I say, for instance, that I hate you, it usually means that I wouldn't mind watching you get hit by a bus. But that's not how God used it. And that's not how Jesus used it. If the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself, then Jesus couldn't possibly want us to hate our loved ones in the sense of harboring malice toward them. What he means instead is that we have to love Jesus above all other people in our lives. We need to give him the proper place in our affections. We can't think of Jesus as a hobby that we get around to if we're not busy with other people. Jesus is either first in our hearts or he's nothing to us. God's use of the word hate regarding Esau has the same idea. It's not that God bears particularly ill will against Esau. If that were the case, he could have smitten him anytime he wanted. What God means in Romans 9.13 is simply that he chose Jacob over Esau to receive the blessings that were promised to the patriarchs. God chooses Jacob before the twins are even born, not for anything in Jacob's future character, but because doing so makes it plain that the unfolding of salvation history happened by God's election. And that election was solely by God's grace, not because the recipients did or could do anything to deserve or to earn it. And the same goes for followers of Christ today. I don't want to step on Pastor Doug's toes when he preaches the rest of this chapter, but this is the point that Paul is building toward in Romans 9. 
People come to saving faith in Christ for no other reason than that God has chosen them before the foundation of the world to be the recipients of his grace. It's not because of the individual's family tree. It's not because God looked into the future to see if the individual would exercise free will to choose Jesus and then based his election on that choice. Rather, it's so that God's purpose of election might continue. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't often pour out his grace on members of the same family tree. He absolutely uses the influence of godly households to bring people to faith. But we have to remember that being born into a Christian family is no guarantee that a person will be saved. This is super uncomfortable to us as parents. We love the Lord and we strive to raise our children in the fear and knowledge of God because we want them to grow to be godly men and women. We don't like thinking that our sons and daughters' names may not be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We feel that that wouldn't be fair. But that's because we have a wrong understanding of what's fair and unfair. Fairness on God's part would mean letting every man, woman, and child in the world go to hell and not saving anyone ever because humanity is sinful. The natural man is dead in his trespasses and sins. As I said last week, the spiritually dead man can do nothing to, to affect his own salvation any more than a physically dead man can do something to make himself physically alive again. There's a reason we don't hear of people climbing out of their caskets at their own funerals to enjoy the luncheon afterward. Dead is dead, and we are dead in sin. God would be perfectly fair in allowing all the spiritually dead to remain in their sin and to eternally suffer his just wrath. We don't really want fairness from God. We want mercy. And God is merciful and gracious. He gave up his only begotten son to take our sins upon himself on the cross so that by faith we can have his righteousness credited to us. The late R.C. Sproul had an excellent quote that I'm going to read for you. He said, Suppose ten people sin and sin equally. Suppose God punishes five of them and is merciful to the other five. Is this injustice? No. In this situation, five people get justice and five get mercy. No one gets injustice. God is not obligated to treat all people equally. We must remember that mercy is always voluntary. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. It would be awesome if we could, by our own power or by the depth of our desire, make our lost loved ones have faith in Jesus. If only we could make it happen by wanting it badly enough, then none of our loved ones would remain objects of God's wrath. But our gracious and merciful God is also sovereign. He, and he alone, determines who will be saved, uncomfortable though it may make us. At the end of the day, we have to remember that God is far greater than our finite minds can comprehend. If we want a God who looks and acts and thinks just like us, we're going to be disappointed. He is entirely other than us. God himself makes this clear in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God can make us uncomfortable sometimes. But in those moments, and in the crises of faith that might result from those moments, the best possible thing we can do is cling to the great truths of Scripture and not our own limited feelings and imperfect understanding. God is good, even when we don't feel like it. And God is loving, even when we don't understand how. Let's pray. Father God, you are good, and you are merciful. And Father, you have delighted to give us your word and to reveal yourself there that we might know you. Father, we confess that we are limited at times in our understanding of you and um, our comprehension of your character. Father, in those moments, help us to trust your word, to trust the truths provided there rather than what we might feel or what we might think, knowing, God, that uh, the discrepancies there are always shortcomings on our part. Thank you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand now and sing our song of response. Take my life and let it be consecrated.